listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we are talking about a health issue that affects a lot of women, millions of women worldwide. But it was very misunderstood and is another one of those health issues that a lot of people a long time ago just assumed was an angry, floating uterus. Yeah, we're going to talk about endometriosis. And back in the day, women who had chronic and severe pelvic pain that we would these days associate more with endometriosis were more likely diagnosed as having something called a suffocating womb or hysteria, as we've talked about in past podcasts, or they were just deemed crazy. Uh, Yes, your pain makes you crazy. Like, yeah, people assume they were possessed and all sorts of crazy stuff. But really the crazy thing is that this disease that affects women is still not 100% understood. There's still questions as to how and why you get it and how you go about Treating it. So speaking of the history of this condition, um, Stanford gynecologist Cameron Neshat, uh, led a review of data going back like 4,000 years and found that women suffering from endometriosis underwent torturous treatments, including leeches and bloodletting, hot douches being hung upside down and even accused of demonic possession and ended up getting killed. And going back and looking at these primary sources, Nazat notes that Plato, for instance, mentions womb suffocation, which was most likely endometriosis. And then fast forwarding way forward in history, we have Freud attributing endometriosis to symptoms of hysteria. And even though it was first identified around 300 years ago, it wasn't until the early 20th century with the development of anesthesia that there were more intensive treatments available because you could actually do things like take a biopsy. Um, but even since then, as we'll talk about, endometriosis is difficult to get a diagnosis for in a timely fashion and difficult to treat. Yeah, I mean, still, surgery and biopsies are probably the best way to diagnose endometriosis, although you can get a uh, minimally invasive surgery. It's not like a massive surgery to detect endometriosis. Um, but let's look at some some facts and stats. Um, something that is heartbreaking to read about because endometriosis is so painful. Most women suffer endometrial pain for up to 10 years before diagnosis. And that that equates to about five years spent in pain before they even report it to anyone or go to the doctor about it. And then another five years for a proper diagnosis, because despite the fact that endometriosis is so common, um, there are many, many stories still of women who go to doctor after doctor after doctor and they're they're diagnosed with things like irritable bowel, uh, even things uh, ranging all the way up to cervical cancer, pretty much anything but endometriosis. And as you can imagine, because endometriosis affects so many women, it does amount up to a massive medical cost. Um, and this is coming from the Endometriosis Foundation of America, which estimates that it racks up about $22 billion in related costs annually. And uh, you mentioned at the top of the podcast, 
says, Caroline, that it affects millions of women and girls worldwide. Endometriosis, as one of the most common health problems in women, affects 176 women and girls. In the United States alone, we're talking about around 8.5 million. And even though 27 is the average age of diagnosis, that is probably not the age of onset for those painful symptoms. Right. Yeah, it is considered, you know, like a not older women. I don't mean like older women. I just mean it's considered like a mature woman's condition. But yeah, like like Kristen just said, it probably is something that young women live with for a long time because they just think, well, this is normal to have really painful periods or I'm too embarrassed to talk about why my body hurts. Um, but it can be serious. Uh, endometriosis is one of the top three causes of female infertility. And while it is one of the most treatable causes of infertility, it is also one of the least treated cases. So let's talk about what endometriosis actually is. I have a feeling that for many of the women listening, and probably a lot of the men too, you've heard about endometriosis. You've heard that word before, but myself included, I wasn't exactly sure what it is inside the body. It is a painful disorder in which the tissue that normally lines the inside of your uterus, which is called the endometrium, grows outside your uterus. And it most commonly involves your ovaries, bowel, or the tissues lining your pelvis, but it can also spread beyond your pelvic region to the lungs, brain, and skin. But those conditions are a lot rarer. Right. And the extreme pain comes from the fact that this endometrial tissue, this displaced tissue, despite where it is, you know, not where it's supposed to be, it still acts like it normally would. So that means that it thickens, breaks down, and bleeds with each menstrual cycle. However, because the displaced tissue has no way to exit your body as it does during your period, it becomes trapped. And when the endometriosis involves your ovaries, cysts called endometriomas can form. And then that leads, even worse, it keeps getting worse, to the surrounding tissue becoming irritated and eventually uh, developing scar tissue and adhesions, which are abnormal tissues that bind organs together. And so not surprisingly, endometriosis can cause pain, sometimes severe and especially during your period. And I know personally some women who have endometriosis and the pain is no joke. Right. It is excruciating for a lot of women. And like you mentioned, Caroline, fertility problems may also develop, but there are some effective treatments that are available, although there is no cure for endometriosis. But let's back up for a minute and talk about what the symptoms of endometriosis are. Yeah, first of all, I mean, obviously you're going, as we said, going to have a lot of pain, but the pain doesn't necessarily equal the severity of the condition itself. It's not like if you have terrible endometriosis, you're going to have terrible pain. You could have terrible endometriosis and have mild pain or vice versa. This is really something that, you know, you do need to go to your doctor about, obviously, because doctors Kristen and Caroline cannot give the official word on anything. So one of the things that you experience as a symptom of endometriosis is painful periods, otherwise known as dysmenorrhea. Basically, horrific cramps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and this pelvic pain and cramping might begin before and extend several days into your period. And that pain can radiate to your lower back and to the abdomen. And most women who have endometriosis also have dysmenorrhea, but it's not, it doesn't work both ways. Most women with dysmenorrhea in general do not 
have endometriosis. So just because you have one doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have the other. And another unpleasant symptom of endometriosis is painful intercourse. Um, this is a common symptom and another reason why it's tricky to diagnose sometimes because this might be an issue that women don't want to talk about because as we talked about in our episode on vulvodynia, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, or the hallmark is extremely painful intercourse. Um, there are, there's lots of shame that goes along with that. Not only are women sometimes uncomfortable just talking about their vaginas and sex and the things that go on, but it can cause problems with partners who might not be too happy about that pain or think that they're faking it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm talking obviously about worst case scenario, but it's certainly a contributor to the diagnosis gap that we see with this condition. And pain also is known to occur with bowel movements or urination. Uh, Although you are more likely to experience those symptoms during your period, And speaking of periods, you are more likely to have excessive uh, bleeding or bleeding between periods. And we've already talked about fertility a couple of times uh, because infertility can be a symptom of endometriosis, probably too for women who have waited longer to go to the doctor or have had more trouble seeking a diagnosis. Um, and on top of all of these pleasant things, so we can just toss in some more symptoms, including fatigue, diarrhea, constipation, bloating and nausea, especially during your period. And if these Symptoms sound like lots of different other things to you. Uh, you're not misled at all. A lot of times uh, women who are, come in with these symptoms often get diagnosed for the wrong thing, like pelvic inflammatory disease, ovarian cyst, or like you mentioned, Caroline, uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. Well, so we also mentioned earlier that, you know, things are still foggy about why women get endometriosis. There are several contributing factors. One of those, one of the main culprits that people talk about is retrograde menstruation. And in this condition, menstrual blood containing endometrial cells flows back through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvic cavity instead of out of the body. These displaced cells stick to the pelvic walls and surfaces of pelvic organs where they grow and continue to thicken and bleed over the course of each menstrual cycle. And it's this is actually thought to happen in a lot of women, but women with endometriosis are might not actually be able to clear the extra fluid as well. And it can also result from uh, issues with embryonic cell growth, specifically in the cells lining the abdominal and pelvic cavities, which come from embryonic cells. Because when one or more small areas of the abdominal lining turn into endometrial tissue, endometriosis can develop. And also for women who might have undergone hysterectomies or had C-sections, endometrial cells can attach to surgical incisions. And there's also the blood vessels and tissue fluid that can transport endometrial cells to other parts of the body. These endometrial cells, by the way, Caroline, they are rebellious. It's like, I'm going to go where I want to go. I know they're like horrible teenagers. They just want to get out of the uterus. <laughs> Let me out of this uterus. Help, I'm a cell. We're not trying to diminish the pain of endometriosis. But really, though, there are so many mechanisms for these cells to get into other parts of the body. Endometriosis is also linked to immune system disorders, and it's 
possible that a problem with the immune system may make the body more unable to recognize and destroy endometrial tissue that's gone rogue, basically. Um, and there's also an issue of the possibility of small amounts of tissue from when you were nothing but an embryo uh, might later become endometriosis. So if you're experiencing these symptoms and you go to the doctor, endometriosis is commonly diagnosed with a pelvic exam in which the doctor will feel for large cysts or scars behind your uterus. Um, you might also get an ultrasound to check for ovarian cysts or something called a laparoscopy, which is when I believe they make an incision in your belly button. Yeah, minimally invasive. It's it, one incisions in your belly button and one is right above your pubic area. And they just look around and they peer inside. But, you know, I just I do want to pause as we're talking about all this, because I know that every time we do a health episode, I'm like, I have it. I have it. I've got it. I have it. Um, but I calmed myself down by reading about the diagnosis and having pelvic exams in which your doctor, you know, feels for abnormalities and any cysts or anything. And I was like, OK, you get a pelvic exam and a pap smear every single year. She has never felt cysts. So you're probably just bloated from, you know, eating too much Mexican food or something. I don't know. So this podcast is your own WebMD symptom <laughs> checker in which you generally get cancer like every other month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but so far you're doing great, Kristen, at helping me figure out that I don't have some of these things. Oh, good. Yep. And you should also listen to the advice we always give our listeners, which is talk to your doctor or nurse practitioner. Right. <laughs> but being aware of these symptoms, especially for something like endometriosis that affects so many women and yet is so hard to, to diagnose, I think is really important, though, yeah. for women not to be alarmist, to say, run to your doctor as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. But... Maybe it it might set off some light bulbs for some girls and women who have been experiencing this kind of pain and discomfort and don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, you know, we're doing our part to help close that gap somewhat because it's it it is very astounding to me that medical technology and research has not caught up to this problem. I don't think it has in any at any rate. Well, they'll never catch up to a floating uterus. That's <laughs> true. Um, so we're talking about diagnosis. And once endometriosis is diagnosed, the treatment for it is going to depend on the severity. And it might include anything from pain medication to hormone therapy. Um, I know women with endometriosis, for instance, who are on uh, hormonal birth control to control the growth of the endometrial tissue. And then there's also surgery, which might include laparoscopy or hysterectomy. Right. And part of the the hormonal birth control treatment makes me think of this girl. And we should do an episode on treating things with birth control. You know, not, you know, not just taking birth control for birth control. But uh, a girl I went to high school with had beyond killer cramps every month. I mean, she was in horrific pain to the point where she had to stay home and she actually, her her parents very reluctantly put her on birth control just to control the pain. Um, but so what that does when you take hormonal birth control is it decreases the amount of menstrual flow and prevents the overgrowth of tissue that lines the uterus. Um, women can also take gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists and antagonists, which lower estrogen levels and stop the menstrual cycle. You can also use progestins like Depo-Provera and 
uh, a medication called Danazol, which is an androgen used to treat endometriosis and other similar conditions. Yeah, and estrogen is often pinpointed when we look into, well, can you prevent this? And unfortunately, the answer is no. There's no way to totally dodge endometriosis. But often, doctors might say that lowering estrogen levels can help. And some ways, non-medicated, that you can do that is through exercise, reducing body fat, avoiding alcohol and caffeine. Sorry, I can't give up my morning coffee. Yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of estrogen, though, I almost hate to mention this study that came out, but it got a lot of press. It was weird. It was very strange. And um, some people, listeners might have seen it when it came out in 2012 because it concluded that among a group of 300 women, those with severe endometriosis were rated as more attractive than those with mild endometriosis, possibly because they have higher levels of estrogen. Now, you can imagine how a finding like that would just be taken and spun out into a million different kinds of clickable headlines um, saying, hey, ladies, do you have endometriosis? Well, here's one upside. People think you're really hot. Yeah, and the the women in the study were rated by two male doctors and two female doctors, and the women who had severe endometriosis tended to have smaller waists and larger breasts. Yeah, so, I mean, take that finding for what it's worth. I I tried to, to find the actual study and kind of wrap my brain around why these four doctors were rating this group of 300 women because the outcome from it, yeah, they, they made the point about, oh, well, estrogen, you know, obviously these women have more hourglass shapes. This is probably having to do with estrogen. There's a genetic tie in this. Um, but the presentation of the, the findings were yeah, making, disturbing. Right. And, and making it about a woman's attractiveness is very weird and icky and strange because it could have been presented as like, Okay, well, these women do have this estrogen and it contributes to having a more hourglass shape. You don't have to go into, well, we rated her hot or not, you know? Yeah, it came across very much hot or not. So I don't know if there are any academics listening who are familiar with the study who can offer some insight into its value. Please email us, momsofadiscovery.com, um, because it was one of those that I just saw in my newsfeed when it first came out and I was a bit taken aback, wondering why, why? (laughs) Um, So moving along from that, what is it like living with endometriosis? Unfortunately, the answer is a lot of times it's very painful. Yeah, there um a lot of the study titles on this condition include phrases like a life shaped by pain, uh agony, I never know how I'll feel. I mean, that should be another indication for women out there who are like, "Oh my god, do I have this?" And clearly the physical toll that it takes on on women is can be pretty severe as well as the mental toll. Um and relationships are something that come up in talking about endometriosis as well because it can be taxing for the partner who's there. There was um a study on how male partners dealt with 
being with a woman who has endometriosis. And it concluded that low mood, anxiety, and powerlessness contributed to a grief-like process, much like that experienced by their female partners, with all, some also reporting acceptance and relationship growth out of that. Um, so just a, a different perspective on how endometriosis is often about a lot more for the women experience it, experiencing it beyond just killer cramps. And speaking of research, there is uh, there is something that's come up in more recent years is readjusting our perception of endometriosis as something that really affects women in their 30s and 40s. Because I did not realize this about endometriosis, but it used to be referred to up until not that long ago as the career woman's disease because it's often diagnosed in women in their 30s who don't have kids. But obviously that's not the only reason why it happens. And the reason why, too, women often get those diagnoses in their 30s. I mean, the average age of diagnosis, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, is 27. But that follows years of symptoms. Right, because 47% of women in one study reported having to see a doctor five times or more before they got a definitive diagnosis. And then you also have to think about, okay, your 30s, you're in your 30s, you don't have kids. Maybe some of these women also have been on birth control or been on Depo-Provera or something. And so they don't even realize until maybe they get older and they want to have kids or they just want to switch their birth control or something. Maybe that's when they start experiencing intense pain because they've gone off of it. Yeah, and I saw a story from uh, 2012 over at uh, WBUR in Boston about a girl, I think she was 14 or 15 when endometrial symptoms first set in. She was at a Taylor Swift concert, actually, and doubled over in these sharp pains that started happening. And following that, she and her parents went through this medical saga of trying to get some kind of diagnosis because nothing, none of the treatments that were being given to her, because no one was thinking, oh, endometriosis, Mm -hmm. none of the treatments were working. And I mean, she's very fortunate because she comes from a wealthy family and they were able to pay thousands and thousands of dollars. And her mother is saying this in the story. Um pays so much money for finding a diagnosis. And then finally, she got hooked up with a specialist who said, oh, this is endometriosis. Um, And so it's so important that maybe we start to, you know, focus our attention away from, oh, well, this is something that happens to middle-aged women who don't have kids. Nope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it is mind-boggling to think that this poor girl had to go to so many doctors when it's like, hello. Well, and how many poor girls? You yeah, know, yes, is, is yes. this going on with who are who are experiencing these kinds of symptoms? I know. I uh, and just to think about how many times she and probably so many other young girls have just—they're like, here, here's some pain meds. Just take some pain meds. Well, and the stat of seeing forty-seven percent of women seeing a doctor five times or more before getting a diagnosis reminds me of similar statistics that come up when you look at polycystic ovarian syndrome, vulvodynia, a lot of these conditions that involve the female pelvis. Well, yeah, and how even today, and we've talked about this before, but like even today we have our own version of telling women they have a hysterical uterus. You know, like our version of that today is the doctor just saying, well, 
Oh, it's like some kind of phantom pain. Like maybe you used to have something that hurt and that was wrong, but now you're just like your body's still firing pain neurons. Or just having doctors who will simply switch up your birth control. Right. Just keep you birth control hopping around. I know personally women that that's happened to where they go in with a problem and the doctor just wants to change the birth control and that's not actually the problem. So um, hopefully I think that one good step is educating ourselves first Mm -hmm. so we know questions to ask right. and symptoms to look for. I'm not saying going the WebMD symptom checker alarmist route yeah. and diagnosing ourselves with cancer, Caroline. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I've gotten better. It's just now it's like, oh, we're researching a health condition for the podcast. Oh, oh no. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, th- these kinds of things can definitely raise our eyebrows, but, you know, we need to be aware of what can happen right. to our bodies. And and it's good for us, you, you and I, to read this stuff and for our listeners to hear us talking about it because it can put a lot of people at ease and educate them about, okay, you probably don't have this, but you might. And that's why it's so important to go to the doctor and know what to look for. And like you said, know what to ask. And hopefully educate guys who are still listening to this podcast all about endometrial tissue gold star to you because I mean that's going to make life easier as well for women and girls who are experiencing this for everybody to have a better idea Mm -hmm. of what exactly is going on inside the body yeah so now I guess let's throw out a call I want to hear from listeners who who have the condition who have dealt with it have you had a stereotypically frustrating medical experience, trying to find a diagnosis and a treatment. And how do you manage your symptoms? I mean, obviously, for some people, they're more severe than others. um, But we want to be able to share with other listeners techniques that maybe you found helpful for managing um, endometrial pain and discomfort. So send us your... Letters, momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send them. You can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we have a couple of letters to share with you right after a quick break. And now back to our letters. All right. Well, I have a letter here from Katie Beth, and she volunteers in women's prisons in her state for a program called StoryLink. And she wanted to write in and give her her view on some things uh, after our women's prison episode. Uh, She says, the visiting situation was not something you mentioned on your podcast. Small active children can easily get in trouble in the visiting room. Guards are already on edge and may may put pressure on moms to control their children. Not an easy task if you haven't seen them on a regular basis. Something else you didn't mention is that communities with men's prisons will often see a wife or girlfriend move into town to be close to an offender during incarceration. It's fairly common for a family to follow a male offender. This does not happen very often for women, and it's uncommon for a primary caregiver to suddenly go months without seeing their children at all because no family member on the outside lives close by or is able or willing to drive some distance to that prison. In all of my volunteer training, it has been stressed that the support system on the outside for a female offender is typically much smaller than the support system on the outside for a male offender. And Katie Beth also points out, uh, she says, I have also been told that administrative segregation slash the SHU, which is uh, segregated housing units, um, is also done for protection. In an enemy situation, safety may only be guaranteed if a target is isolated. So thank you for all of your inside knowledge, Katie. We appreciate it. And thanks for listening. 
And I've got an email here from Kate in response to our Lean In episode, Unbalancing Work-Life Balance. And uh, it was she's referencing a story that you told, Caroline, about um, an older man who was uh, profiled on Humans of New York who said that uh, when he looked back, he said he'd give up a couple of rungs on the ladder to have spent more time with his kids. She writes, I think this is a pretty common refrain, and to be honest, it's one that's always irked me. It's easy to say to younger people, you shouldn't work too hard, enjoy life, it'll work out, etc. But the reality is, it's a lot easier to say that, having made money and knowing how your life turned out, than it is in your 20s. You don't know at 25 whether you'll be successful or have the money to pay for your kids' college education or buy a house. You don't know whether you could suffer financial setbacks as a result of something that could happen to your partner or whether you will have the sort of career that enables you to live comfortably and have a good work-life balance. I don't think you have to pressure yourself to have it all to still struggle with mitigating these concerns. While it may seem like a cruel irony, I don't think you can really take that tact in anything but hindsight or once you've had the luxury to slow down. From personal experience, my grandparents worked really hard to get to the top and barely saw their children. My parents decided to do things differently because they wanted the balance and more time with their kids, but they have financially suffered enormously for it. The sad reality is there is no right answer nor any way of saying you would be happier or better off if you had taken it easier. I think the best we can do is find jobs that make us happy for 50 weeks out of the year and not just counting down to the two weeks when we're on vacation. Likewise, it's important to raise children not apologizing constantly or punishing yourself for the time away, but rather emphasizing yourself as a strong role model of good work ethics and maximizing the time that you do have together. Hmm. So thanks for some wisdom, Kate, and some real talk. And if you've got some real talk to send to us, momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. Please head over to Facebook and like us and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you can watch us as well on YouTube. YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You is where you can go. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 